President Barnes, Dean Lapsley, colleagues, students, friends, it is a joy for me to be with you this evening. I want to thank President Barnes for the honor of this invitation and extend a special welcome to all of you, and especially to those who are here for the first time. May this seminary become your very own beloved community, as it has been for generations of students before you. May you grow rich in the love and knowledge of God and in love and friendship toward all with whom you share your life here. The healing of Bartimaeus is just one of the many stories recorded in the New Testament that enables us to see the depth of Jesus' compassion for human suffering. Over the years, I've returned to this story again and again for inspiration and instruction. I imagine the blind man sitting by the side of the road for weeks with his ears wide open, waiting to hear if Jesus will pass by. And when he hears the jostling crowds on this day, he strains to identify who is making this commotion. And upon hearing that it is indeed Jesus, he immediately cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When those around him try to hush him up, it only increases his determination to be heard. He cries out again, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and calls him. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus stops whenever, whatever he's doing and pays attention to the one who cries to him for help? So many stories flood the mind. Jairus pleading on behalf of his dying daughter. The leper who comes to him begging to be made clean. The disciples terrified by the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The tormented demoniac who cries out in anguish night and day. Even the hemorrhaging woman who sneaks up behind him, desperate for the healing that has eluded her despite years of searching. Though each person's situation is unique, Jesus can see what is truly in their hearts and addresses each one in their particular distress. These stories sound like concrete illustrations of Psalm 107 with its litany-like refrain, then in their trouble they cried to the Lord and you delivered them from their distress. In the Psalm, we're given a myriad circumstances in which God hears our cry for help, whether we're wandering in desert wastes, hungry and thirsty, or prisoners in misery and gloom, whether we're afflicted with illness or with guilt, or are overwhelmed by the storms of life crashing in on us. <clears throat> and although Bartimaeus cries out specifically for mercy, not compassion, Mercy and compassion are so closely interwoven in scripture that they're used almost interchangeably. The rhetorical device of parallelism in Romans 9, for example, 
underscores the importance of what is being said by saying it twice, each with its own nuance. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the Gospel of Luke combines the two attributes by speaking of God's merciful compassion. While both are features of God's grace and loving kindness, mercy especially emphasizes God's sovereign power to save and compassion, his willingness to enter fully into our human plight. The Lord's decision to be God with us is evident in how profoundly he takes our suffering to heart. The mercy of God, as described by Karl Barth, reveals the free inclination of an unconditionally superior one towards one who is unconditionally subordinate and is characterized by God's readiness to share in sympathy with the distress of another, a readiness which stamps all his doing and being. <clears throat> by calling on Jesus as the son of David, Bartimaeus acknowledges Jesus' royal power as one in the lineage of David, the king of all Israel. He thus recognizes Jesus as God's designated agent, as one who has the power of a king to grant mercy. The gap between the powerlessness of the beggar and the power of the king is especially pronounced here. Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully human, combines these two attributes, the mercy of God Almighty with the compassion of a fellow sufferer, a human being like us. According to Mark, Jesus is moved with compassion when he looks out at the gathering crowds because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And this is not simply a passing feeling, but rather something that affects him to the core of his being. Profound caring for another's distress was thought to reside in the very bowels of a person, saying his response was gut-wrenching, captures something of the flavor of the Greek word splanknizomai. Isn't that a great word? <laughs> I had to listen to it on Google to make sure I got it right. <laughs> Jesus is moved to his very entrails when he sees the masses so hungry and desolate, so in need of sustenance, healing, and hope. And though surrounded by multitudes day after day, he still hears each individual's cry. Striking to notice how the one called blind in this story is in fact the only one who has eyes to see who Jesus truly is. Though he suffers the affliction of physical blindness, he sees more clearly than many in the crowd. For Bartimaeus not only acknowledges Jesus' royal power, but also trusts in his loving compassion from the start when he cries out to him. From the very beginning of the dramatic scene, we are clued into the fact that Bartimaeus sees with eyes of faith. He's at the ready and seizes the moment when it comes. 
If he could only make his voice heard over the din of the crowd, then Jesus would hear him and be gracious to him. And amid all that noise and clamor, Jesus does hear his voice and says, call him. The crowd, who had been so eager to silence him, is now instructed to assist him. He who has sat invisibly at the margins of the community is now thrust into its center. For when Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is calling him, he throws off his mantle and springs up. He leaps into decisive action and is at Jesus' side in an instant. A helpless, blind beggar throws off his cloak and springs up. Don't you feel wonderstruck when you hear that? Here's our clue that a miracle is already underway, even before Bartimaeus asks for what he needs. Faith in the loving heart and inexpressible power of God is mysteriously already his. And upon seeing his faith, Jesus asks him directly, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus doesn't miss a beat. He knows his heart's desire. Master, let me receive my sight. I imagine this has been his prayer for a long time. And I suspect that those who have committed themselves to a life of prayer will know their need when Jesus stands before them. Those who are aware of their complete dependence upon God for the gift of life itself, for their daily bread, for the forgiveness of their sins, for deliverance from temptation and evil, for the healing of their bodies and spirits, for the willingness to forgive those who have hurt them, indeed, for the wisdom, courage, and hope that come from God's Spirit alone. When Jesus stands before them, asking about what they need, they'll be ready with their answer. They won't hesitate. Like Bartimaeus, they will entrust themselves to him entirely. They will spring up in joy. And here, we're reminded of those strange sayings that we know as the Beatitudes. Jesus speaks of blessings that belong to the meek, to the brokenhearted, the poor and the humble, to those who ache for justice and peace, or who are persecuted for seeking it. All those who suffer because of their deep yearning for God's kingdom to come, these are the ones who are blessed. But how can such affliction be a blessing? The blessing is not in the affliction itself, but rather in the durable faith that grows as they learn day by day to depend completely on God. The blessing is in the rock-solid trust that God will see them through. By contrast, when we are accustomed to relying exclusively on our own strength, on our natural gifts, or our intelligence, or education, then we might not see the depths of God's compassion 
until we are brought low. Nicholas Walterstorff, a professor emeritus of philosophical theology at Yale Divinity School, writes about how his understanding of God shifted after his firstborn son fell from a mountain slope at the age of 25 and died. In his book, Lament for a Son, Walterstorff writes, for a long time, I knew that God is not the impassive, unresponsive, unchanging being portrayed by the classical theologians. I knew the pathos of God, but strangely, his suffering I never saw before. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. And great mystery. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. But I never saw it. Though I confessed that the man of sorrows was God himself, I never saw the God of sorrows. Those who have really seen Jesus' compassionate heart and who have come to trust and believe that Jesus is the living presence of God will find themselves shouting out with the psalmist, you have shown me the path to life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And such joy becomes a wellspring inside us to which we can return for refreshment, refreshment even in the midst of struggle and sorrow. Compassion, in the sense I'm speaking of it, is not an abstract theological principle, but rather an attribute of our living Lord. It's not a human virtue that we have to struggle to develop, but rather a divine gift given as we participate in God's work among us, no longer blinded to God's power at work among us. We become witnesses to Jesus Christ by offering others the compassion that we have by grace received. The blessing of a life together centered on worship and the communal study of God's life-giving word as we are privileged to enjoy here at Princeton Seminary is an incomparable gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us on the first page of his book, Life Together, that it is not to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Bonhoeffer wrote these words just as his own community was threatened at its core, as the Nazi party in Germany was sending some off to war, some off to prison, and others, including Bonhoeffer himself a few years later, 
off to concentration camps. We are faced today with enormous challenges in our nation, in our world, and also here at Princeton Seminary. Recent events in our common life prompt me to ask, if you were to imagine Jesus standing before us, before our community, asking, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be? I'm asking this question not simply about your individual distress, but more so about the distress you experience as a member of this community. Of course, the two are inseparable. But the focus of my question is on how you perceive the needs of our shared life together and not simply your personal need. Would you be ready with your answer when Jesus sees your mustard seed of faith? Would you have the courage of Bartimaeus to cry out your lament? Don't worry, I'm not asking you to shout it out, but only to imagine doing so. <clears throat> In light of an email I read this summer as I was preparing this address, I found myself crying out to God once again for the healing of racial tensions and divisions among us. The email from President Barnes and Dean White spoke of an act of hate speech that seemed to be directed as a racial slur against one of our families, against one of our very own families. I felt heartsick when I read it. My stomach tensed up, tears burned at the back of my eyes. I felt dread in my belly, a confusing knot of alarm, anger, bewilderment, fear, sorrow. I imagined the shock, the hurt, the fear, and the anger that the targeted families might be feeling. I also thought about the sincere efforts that have been made in recent years to work toward racial reconciliation and lamented that such an act of violence might undermine the good work and the goodwill of so many. A single incident like this affects the entire community. And a comment by Harry Emerson Fosdick seems apt, who wrote, we have even secret sins which poison the wells from which other people drink. Though done in secret, this racial slur poisons us all. Kata Weingarten, a psychologist and professor emerita at Harvard Medical School, has named experiences like this common shock. Common shock is widespread because it includes not only the direct victims of violence and violation, but also all those who are witnesses of it. Common shock affects all of us, but each of us in an idiosyncratic way as we each attempt to make meaning out of what has occurred. When we experience events and exchanges that disturb us, Weingarten comments, everyone must metabolize daily joint, jolts. Since few of us are aware of the chronically debilitating effects of common shock, she writes, few people know how to deal with it themselves, or crucially, help children to do so. 
Her comment is very much to the point in our situation, for I imagine that those children, those with children, would feel the impact of this incident all the more viscerally. African Americans, immigrants, people of color, anyone perceiving themselves to be targets of a racial slur may be especially concerned about how to talk about it with their children. Weingarten illuminates the dilemma when she writes, a parental imperative is to keep one's children from harm, and warning children about danger is a primary means of safeguarding them. However, when the warnings themselves terrify and have the potential to harm, parents are in a terrible bind. From my study of neuroscience in my courses on trauma and grace, I've come to appreciate how impossible it is for children or for any of us to learn and grow if they are surrounded by threat and violence. Without a sense of safety, none of us can take in new information, let alone interact with it creatively, connecting it to what is already known so that it becomes meaningful knowledge. Such a realization is obviously important for an academic institution which cannot function at all apart from an optimal learning environment for all its members. So I was encouraged as I read in the President and Dean's email that we will be provided with opportunities to grow as a learning community in identifying and rooting out racism, discrimination, and other impediments to inclusion of all members of our community and beyond. <clears throat> what will this entail? How might we go about this huge task with some degree of confidence or hope <clears throat> that we can succeed? There's so many levels to consider, it can get overwhelming pretty quickly. When we consider our nation's history, we cannot help but acknowledge the structural racism that has infected all our institutions, including our own. And racism can be studied biblically, theologically, historically, politically, economically, and spiritually. And I hope that we will use this event in our common life to endeavor, endeavor to get at the deep roots of our terrible plight, which of course we share with um, all Americans and people all across the world. It's not just our problem, but I'm focusing it here in our community. Because we have this privilege of being a covenant community, of being together, of learning, how to negotiate difference so that we can do it after we leave here as leaders in the church. And since we're a learning community, a reading community, we will no doubt read what scholars, including members of our own faculty, have written to consider and discuss their ideas. Dispassionate investigation of our nature's our nation's and our seminary's history needs to be combined with passionate commitment to justice 
and compassion for all of us caught in this tangled web of pain. We cannot afford to distance ourselves emotionally from the impact of what we read. We need to find a way to one another's hearts as we read together. Here I'm reminded of something that James Baldwin said more than 50 years ago. You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was Dostoevsky and Dickens who taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all people who were alive, who had ever been alive. Only if we face these open wounds in ourselves can we understand them in other people. Can we use this opportunity to discover that the things that torment us most are the very things that connect us with one another? Can we find a way for our suffering of this open wound to draw us together as a community that is called to compassion? If one member suffers, all suffer together. Baldwin wisely notes, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. This is the question I want to address. Can we find a way together as one body bound together in our love for Jesus Christ bear the unbearable burden of racism in our beloved community so that it does not separate us and estrange us from one another. It's important to note that though we all suffer this burden, the suffering of the witness is not to be confused with the suffering of those whose group has been harmed by violent speech or by other violating actions or attitudes. In his book, Suffering Witness, The Quandary of Responsibility After the Irreparable, James Hatley writes this, by witness is meant a mode of responding to the other's plight that becomes an ethical involvement. One must not only utter a truth about the victim, but also remain true to her or him. In this latter mode of response, one is summoned to attentiveness, which is to say, a heartfelt concern for and acknowledgement of the gravity of violence directed toward particular others. In this attentiveness, the wounding of the other is registered in the first place not as an objective fact, but as a subjective blow, a persecution, a trauma. We find that our witness of the other who suffers is itself suffered. We suffer, so to speak, the impossibility of suffering the other's suffering. Those of us who are witnesses and not directly targeted are summoned to attentiveness, are directed toward the ones who are hurting. 
In order to hear the wounding not as an objective fact but as a subjective blow, we need to take the time to listen to how it affects our neighbors personally. To listen, to pay attention, to find out what matters to each one. It's the subjective blow, the trauma that has been suffered that needs to be heard with tenderness. Our solidarity and caring is conveyed as we listen and respond to the hurt or the anger or the fear of each one. And his last point, that we suffer, so to speak, the impossibility of suffering the other's suffering is also important to grasp. No matter how much we may care for those who have been hurt or have been made afraid, we might not ever fully understand what they're going through. Unlike Jesus, we cannot see what is in another's heart. Our understanding is limited. Weingarten reminds us that it's important to ensure that at no point do we ever confuse whatever suffering might come from witnessing with the suffering that we are witnessing. They are not akin to each other, she says, and we have an ethical responsibility to ensure that we are not confused by this. Weingarten goes on to differentiate the task of the sufferer from the task of the witness. While the task of the sufferer is to resist isolation, the task for the witness is to refuse indifference. I want to address each of these in turn. First, I want to address those who understand themselves to be directly impacted by this racial slur or by any other violating acts or attitudes that are in this community. Resist isolation. Do not take hateful speech into your heart and let it fester there. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the one perpetrating the violence. Talk to your neighbors to get support. Ask your friends to hold you in prayer. Talk with the minister of our chapel, Jan Ammon, or with our pastoral resident, Yeti Walker. If the incident triggers traumatic symptoms, such as intrusive thoughts or images of violence or danger that go round and round and round in your mind, making you unable to sleep or to focus on your studies, let your feet lead you to our student counseling center. Nancy Shingala Bowman has a cadre of therapists and counselors who are trained specifically to work with trauma, anxiety, and depression. Don't suffer alone in silence. Let your crying out be heard. Let your crying out to Jesus be heard by the members of his body right here at the seminary. Second, for those who are witnesses to this or other acts of violence in our community, refuse indifference. It's true that those in a position of privilege can more easily distance themselves from the impact or even resort to minimizing it. Might you be thinking, oh, come on, Dr. Hunsinger, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Whenever we insist on interpreting any kind of violence as a minor issue, we blind ourselves to someone's pain. 
And sometimes we minimize it because we don't want to acknowledge our own pain. Another way to distance ourselves would be to spend our energy looking for a scapegoat. It's tempting to think that maybe the racial slur came from someone outside our community, and so excuse ourselves. And while I do hope that the person who perpetrated this violent speech will be held accountable for his or her actions, we ought not to waver in our essential task, which is to care for those who have been harmed, to provide a sanctuary for grief to be shared, and to build whatever bridges of trust we can by listening attentively and compassionately to our neighbor's pain, and to pray without ceasing for Jesus Christ to heal our divisions. The psychiatrist Vamik Falkan writes, when members of a victim group are unable to mourn such losses or reverse their humiliation, they pass on to their offspring images of their injured selves and even object images of those who hurt them. The next generation is given unconsciously as well as consciously tasks to carry out for their ancestors such as completing the mourning process, reversing the humiliation. Traumatic loss, heartbreak, the humiliation of entire peoples. It matters a great deal how we respond to one another as we mourn our country's history of apartheid, the radical separation among ethnic and racial groups and our failures to love one another. Can we listen to one another with respect and love, and especially to those who have been harmed in such devastating ways? Can we call together, can we together call upon our compassionate God to have mercy upon us and to help us find a way to hear one another into speech? In his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer reminds us that Jesus Christ stands between each of us and every other member of the community. He writes that we can meet each other only through the mediation of Christ, that we will find full fellowship with our brother or sister only in the Christ who alone binds us together. He goes on to say that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ, and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. As we commit ourselves to pray for the afflicted in our community, we will also be drawn to them again and again in a spirit of open-hearted listening. Our compassion will become palpable when it depends upon, but not apart from, Christ's own compassion. I believe that the humiliation and the trauma of generations suffered by African Americans, by generations of Native Americans, by generations of immigrants from around the world is a burden too heavy for us to carry. It's too heavy for any one individual to bear. Even, I believe, for a whole community to bear alone. We cannot atone for the sins of our ancestors, nor can we heal the suffering 
that people of color endured or continue to endure to this very day. It's only as we call upon Christ to intercede for us that we can enter into this space at all. We are mortal, fallen human beings who cannot right the balance and we cannot simply declare ourselves forgiven. We can only entrust ourselves to God and cry out for his mercy. By God's grace, we are able to take all that we have heard, all that we understand, and all that we have failed to understand and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Together, we can pray for deliverance. As President Barnes and Dean White wrote to us just a few weeks ago, we will work together to promote an environment in which all are treated with the dignity, honor, and love that befits the children of God. This task needs all of us working together, for we deeply need one another's support, encouragement, prayers, love, and goodwill. In his book, Raging with Compassion, Pastoral Responses to the Problem of Evil, John Swinton writes, if we are to resist or transform evil, it is vital to find ways to reclaim the practice of lament. And I believe that the black church has given the world church a priceless treasure in the cries of lament that come to us as African-American spirituals. Centuries of affliction and oppression have been metabolized and transformed into inexpressible beauty, resilient hope, and durable trust in the God who hears our cry. But each of us needs to claim their particular gifts and give them gladly for the good of the whole. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Each person here brings unique gifts to this community that no one else has. Each of you belongs to Christ's body as the unique and irreplaceable individual that you are, and you are essential to the working of the whole. The seminary needs to hear your voice even if, like Bartimaeus, you stand at the margins, even if you have experienced others trying to silence you. Do not allow yourself to be silenced. Take heart, rise. He is calling you. Thank you.